0: From the MGMA in home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: I mean, the thing is, this is a finite period of time, and we don't know what's on the other end, but there is hope. And I, honestly, I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity to do things in a different way.
0: That's Dr. Haley Fisher Wright on the state of healthcare amid the COVID 19 crisis. We'll hear more from Haley on the challenges medical practice leaders are facing across the country, as well as the importance of connection and gratitude during these difficult times. But first, a word from our sponsor. Is physician profitability a problem in your hospital-owned practice? Then let InThrive Analytics help drill into your physician data and get a clearer picture. At one of the nation's largest multi-institutional healthcare delivery systems, with 92 hospitals and 107 continuing care locations, InThrive Analytics aggregated data from 62 disparate billing systems into one, providing unprecedented visibility to monitor performance and implement improvement plans. Bottom line, the organization realized a 15% reduction in loss per physician 30% improvement in productivity, and 20% improvement in schedule density. Visit nthrive.com to learn how your organization can leverage analytics and achieve similar results. The MGMA Insights podcast team has published several interviews with medical practice leaders since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, we're excited to bring you a special interview with our own leader, Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright. As MGMA President and CEO, Haley has been keeping up with practices from coast to coast and sharing her executive expertise across numerous healthcare platforms and mediums. Haley, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate the invite.
0: Now, as you know, and our listeners know, we're going through a very unique time right now with the COVID-19 outbreak. There's new information coming out every day on it. Uh, From your perspective, what, what has gone through your mind? What have you learned from talking to other leaders around the country as we've seen this unfold and sweep across the globe and across the U.S.?
1: Well, I think there's a there's a couple things that I'm thinking about right now. And Daniel, I think you really point to something that is unique to this Covid phenomenon and unique to us as medical uh, executives, and that is there's no rule book or playbook for this phenomenon. We're all making it up as we go along. I think what we've found as leaders as I talk to my colleagues is sometimes we make it up and it's a home run, and sometimes it's crickets. Um, and so the way I'm starting to think about this uh, situation with COVID-19 is that we had the first phase, which is the what the heck phase. Like it got, it got dark so fast. And we you know, went into shelter at home across 80% of the country without really thinking through when we knew that was a necessity to protect our society. But we didn't really think through what were the long-term consequences for it, and now as we enter into the second phase, um, I think we're now starting to navigate some of the consequences, and particularly for medicine in the United States, this has been devastating. Um, and that's a lot of what I'm speaking with with my colleagues. I think a lot of healthcare associations, in particular, you know, we're 97 years old. We're accustomed to been there, done that. It, it may not have happened in the last five or 10 years, but within the last 40 years, it's happened. I can conclusively say that in the 97 years of MGMA's history, this has not happened um, because we were um, founded in 1923 before the, uh, or I should say after the 1918 pandemic. So um, we're trying to figure out how how to take care of the things that are in front of our face now, how to navigate the next 90 to 120 days. And honestly, for a lot of my colleagues, we can't even plan the future other than what we're kind of whiteboarding, if you will, because we still need time to go along. And I think a lot about Daniel. Um, At MGMA, we went to shelter at home through the state of Colorado, third week in March. It's now the last week in April. Uh, We'll be going off of shelter at home uh, back into the office May 18th, but it'll be a rotating type of thing. And very much uh, for us in Colorado, we're gonna try it and see. And we've got lots of unanswered questions as well. Um, Who do we bring back? Do we bring back everybody full time? Yes, we have the physical space to adhere to social distancing, but what about our vulnerable staff members? So I think all of us, not just in healthcare, are trying to answer those questions and stay sane while doing it.
0: Yeah, and that, that's the next question I want to ask you about, because I've talked to a lot of the our MGMA colleagues, I've talked to peers and healthcare professionals across the country, and we're dealing with a, a common problem how do you find balance because now that we are have been working from home we're tethered to that desk you know we're we get up we get right to the computer and you got to find some of those boundaries how have you been finding balance and what advice can you give our listeners out there what they can do to find balance as well
1: well I think I'd like to start as I'm an opposer child uh, at least for the first month of what not to do. <laughs> uh, and that I've, I've learned from that. And I think the thing is we've been doing the shelter at home and the teleworking for so long um, now that it, we have kind of started to develop a routine. So the first part of March, the, the thing is I love my job and I love working. And I think one of the things that is going to sustain people through this time period is really understanding what your purpose is really, my value system is such, I want to help people. And so from that standpoint, it was, you know, when this started, and we were able to do so much with MGMA, but I was working 16, 18 hours a day. And because we span the entire country, um, you know, we start Eastern time zone early, and then go all the way to actually Pacific and Hawaiian time zone. So my days were stretching out. And Honestly, it was very fulfilling that first couple of weeks because we saw the impact in a positive way that we were doing for people in the crisis. That being said, as we started to get out of that kind of first two and three week period and started into what I consider that middle period, kind of the first of April, I think there was fatigue, and I think the fatigue wasn't just um, wasn't just me as a human being, but it's fatigue with our staff, fatigue with our uh, members, fatigue with my family. Um, My family really um, was like, we're glad you're home. We're glad you're safe. And we actually need to spend some time with you. We're actually, uh, my husband basically said to me, I think you are more connected with your staff at MGMA, your team than you've ever been. Yay. And I need some time with you which is ironic since I've been home nonstop since the second week of March and so it he and I really started to have this conversation around balance now when I wrote back to balance I basically said in there I don't believe in the concept of balance but I think during this crisis what I have come to reassess is the need for self care so yeah I could work 16 18 20 hours a day and honestly, there's a part of me that's very fulfilled by that. But to your point, Daniel, I had to set some boundaries. So I set the boundaries of I'm going to stay within working hours, uh, mountain time zone working hours. But then the other thing is to get into habits and really uh, get into those habits that uh, will help sustain me. So physical, emotional, spiritual, um, those type of habits. So I now I have a Uh, I get up, I walk my dogs, check physical, I am a consistent meditator. I do that. Um, and, you know, really focusing on spending time reaching out to people and staying connected, not on a business or work way, but maintaining those friendships. And I think it's hard for someone in my position, given that this is such a devastating global pandemic, this is for me to say, um, I have balance. But what I can say is I have had to prioritize self-care in there.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that's the challenge that all of us have found, just trying to find some kind of balance and, as you said, fall into a routine. Um, Yeah. And that, I think for a lot of us, it did take a few weeks to get there, but then you just kind of figure out, okay, this is what's going to work and what's not going to work. One of the interesting things on the MGMA site is that MGMA community. We've uh, opened that up for many of the practice leaders so yeah. that they can share their stories. Cause they're, as we've talked about, they have found unique challenges right now, things that they've never experienced before. Um, a lot of financial challenges, staffing challenges that they've had to deal with. They've been sharing those stories, um, on the MGMA community. And yeah. I just wanted to see if you, if you could just take a moment to to speak to that community, what your thoughts are to them and, and how you've been responding and the MGMA team has been responding to what they've been dealing with.
1: Well, I think, so I'm gonna tell you the tale of two practices, coast to coast, actually three practices. Start with on the West Coast uh, primary care practice, in a state, wasn't in Washington and Oregon though. Uh, so impacted earlier than a lot of the people in the United States. Um, could see what was going on in Seattle and could prognosticate how that was gonna affect them directly, they are in Portland. So very proactive, uh, Nine pra- I think nine or 11 practices, shut down some of their practices, rearranged their staff, created sick and well, started to stockpile, supplies um arrange credit line with the bank i mean honestly i would say much better responder than our federal government was at that point in time Um, had everything planned out but no one knew once we went into shelter in place how that would crash cash flow almost immediately and so from that standpoint it was the one i mean he planned on that there would be cash flow issues, but I don't think he really planned on 80%, 90% decrease in volume. And so what we were able to do with, um, with uh, through our membership commu- uh, communities, is really talk about um, what can you do. He, he's a very sophisticated administrator, so it wasn't a manage revenue, manage expense. That, he, that was light year's below where he was. He was really saying, I'm going to blow through my credit line in 32 days. What what can I do? And I think our advocacy team, who uh, frequently haunts our membership communities, really saw that, used his example as they're going to our legislators to make it real. Because everybody is suffering from this crisis but one of the things i'm really poking hard on is yes we need restaurants to recover we need small business to recover and i think one of the temptations when we talk about mgma is to think that it's small business but it it's we're divert we're the diversity that is healthcare so in that practice it was how do they get access to capital how do they sustain through so we know it's that this first phase of this uh, pandemic is is the first part and then you'll see volume come back but it won't be immediately it's not like you shut off a spigot and turn it back on how do you last through that time period and so uh, we were able to work with our um, advocacy team to help come up with some solutions as we start to see these bills roll through but then we're also able to um, work with him his teams and put them into networks of like-minded, like-specialty groups so that they can share best practices. And I think that was really instrumental for him. Um, Let me move to the middle of the country, small practice I'm intimately familiar with, my husband's practice. Um, Nine providers, two offices, uh, busy primary care pediatrics. Uh, When Colorado went into shelter at home, their volume dropped 80% they weren't doing telehealth beforehand. It took them approximately three days to do it. Um, and at that point in time, the telehealth provisions to help get compensated had been passed by the time that came around. Um, they ch- chose to make one office sick, one office well, um, and uh, they were gonna f- furlough people, but instead they um, pulled in the SBA and uh, loan and got it. And so now they're working through How do we plan as a small practice with nine providers? How do we scale up anticipating that this is going to go all summer? Then last stop uh, across my, across the United States tour, we have a large practice over 150 uh, physicians, I think 25 to 30 sites. I think it's a $500 million a year business. Didn't qualify for the SBA provisions over 500 FTEs and yet their cash crunched so here's a practice who's accustomed to have a, having a stream of revenue of, of 30 40 50 million dollars a month that all of a sudden went down to eight nine million dollars so how do you navigate that how do you keep the staff your benefits etc um and i think the because of the media people's perception was that uh, access to PPE, personal protective equipment, was the number one concern. I would say it was a concern, but what became quickly apparent was that it was the cash okay. concern. And so we've been instrumental from, from the small primary cares to the largest entities in the country, helping to provide services across the board. And, the, and much like this disease, as you see it being navigated state to state, the solutions for medical practices are unique and special. So there's not one band-aid that we can put on every medical practice. Right.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing those stories. I think that's important to know what peers across the country, what they're dealing with as well. Um, one of the ways you've been communicating with healthcare professionals across the country is through your writing. You have, uh, penned articles. You've been interviewed quite a bit as well during this lockdown. One of the articles you wrote appeared in Physician's Practice. It was titled The Importance of Hope and Gratitude in Times of Grief. Uh, I read that article, and I immediately sent you an email, and I said, like everybody else, I've read, I've lost count of how much COVID-19 information I've consumed, but this one spoke to me, and I bookmarked it. I told you that in the email, and that's one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on here to talk in more detail about that. First of all, I just wanted to get an idea of where did the inspiration come from in writing it?
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate that. Um, you know, there was a great article in Harvard Business Review about grief in in the situation going on. It was on, on the Harvard Business Review online and, it, and I've seen in the lay press and New York Times, even um, the, writing a lot about grief. I've listened a lot. Everybody is having COVID dreams. These vivid, they're not necessarily fantasies. Their dreams are nightmares about what's going on. And I think that this situation has disrupted a, a national sense of identity, who we are, what we hold dear and the the securities we feel. And I think it's very much, when I think about this, it's very much like Maslow's hierarchy where security is kind of, you know, that food, shelter, security before you can be, for lack of a better word, self-actualized. Okay, so that's very intellectual. The bottom line is when I talk to people, they're worried. Losing jobs, spouses losing jobs, concerned about health. I know for myself personally, um, I, on um, my parents side, my parents are sheltering at home. My father has lung disease and multiple sclerosis and, um, starting to really wrap my mind around, he's not going to leave his house, uh, for 18 to 24 months. Uh, on my husband's side, his mother's in his eighties and she has lung disease. She's not going to leave her house. And so there's a sense of loss, loss of control, loss of uh, everything that you know, loss of security. Um, you know, someone asked me, you know, do you feel secure in your job? And I, I responded, I don't know that anyone right now is secure in their job. Not even the president is secure in his job. Right now. So, uh, uh, well, that's not true. I think Anthony Fauci is secure in his job, but that's about <laughs> it across the United States. Um, so, so, with that, it's very easy. Um, to start to spindle in I've lost everything I have nothing. And, and I think as you're processing your grief and you go through all those different stages of grief, and you know I think, I think the way we were all taught in psychology on the Kubler Rosses, you know, you go through these stages. but the reality is it's more like a scatter plot where you're visiting different places. And the genesis of that con- of that article was I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, who coaches fortune 100 ceos that's her job she's one of the best best and brightest people i know um she's super positive and, and sometimes i have the inner dialogue i wish i could be as positive as she right. is okay and then as we were having this conversation she said "You know, this is supposed to be a perfect year i had speeches lined up, my book coming out, everything. And I've lost everything. And just the amount of pain. And it was what I was really listening. I think I think one of the things that's happened and why I'm grateful for Zoom is, you know, even recording this podcast, I get a response from you. You're watching me. I'm, you know, I'm kind of, you know, checking in with you. Or is this, you know, resonating with you? But um you're not, your soul isn't being fed in the same way as if you're with people. And particularly if you crave connection, um, if you're an extrovert, this has been a really hard experience. For people who are consultants in particular, mm-hmm. the world stopped and, and things fell away, what needs to happen. Um, and so so from her standpoint, she was feeling this huge sense of loss, loss and grief. And what really struck me, though, as she was speaking was, and I have a background. I was trained as an executive coach and one of my, uh, I've had a diverse career. So as I was listening to her, what kept coming to me was, yes, and. Yes, this isn't going to be the way you thought. And there's huge opportunity. Yes. And there's hope. This isn't, I mean, the thing is, this is a finite period of time, and we don't know what's on the other end, but there is hope. And honestly, I think there's going to be tremendous opportunity to do things in a different way. I think one of the things that I've experienced and where my hope lies is that a lot of the stuff that we do, particularly in healthcare, that just doesn't add value, but we do it to do it, has been stripped away our advocacy platform is about uh, reducing administrative burden and honestly this this situation has given us the opportunity to kind of scratch at that a lot harder than we have in the last five years or so so I see there there's opportunity and with that hope and when I say hope it's very much why I've been doing so many podcasts you have time to actually listen uh, you have time, whether you want it or not, to actually think about what matters, to think about um, what you want to accomplish in your career, to think about the opportunities in your practice that you do recognize, particularly in medical practice, that everything we do, which is iterative, we did this, let's do this 3% more, let's do this 5% more, that you may get a do-over where you could potentially scratch it out and start from scratch if you got to design this what would this look like what would this look like for Daniela for the listeners and that gives me huge amount of hope of what the future could be because I think it means that we can really design the world we want it to be and I think things were before COVID kind of getting fast and we were just kind of not really present we were just busy doing things particularly in medical practice and i think we've seen providers really figure out why they do what they do why what gives them meaning i think we've seen that with administrators i mean, no, I mean you can't deny that this is the most stressful awful experience that any of us have gone through in our lives uh, that isn't that isn't directly personal to us But I also think that we should wrap arms around that there's never been a greater opportunity for us as well. And if you look at any huge crisis, the pandemic of 1918, after World Wars, et cetera, you see growth, creativity, uh, inspiration, and innovation. And I think that's what we need to remind ourselves as we get into the monotony of uh, our number nine of Zoom call that uh, that there is an end to this and that there will be growth after.
0: Right. It, it's interesting that you, a lot of the points you were making there, one of those was you mentioned that your husband's practice stood up a, a telehealth part of the practice over several days. We had someone on uh, the podcast just a couple of weeks ago who basically did the same thing. It was a behavioral health practice that had, been on the fence for, they told us six months on whether we should go get into telemedicine or not. What should we do there? This happened. And then they were able to just go ahead and implement it in over the weekend, train their uh, providers there, and then get that rolling. So it does seem like crisis can sort of at times force you to make those changes. So I wanted to shift gears and look at this through the lens of leadership, um, as practices are dealing with some really difficult problems, as you were talking about, they're talking about, they're dealing with staffing challenges, they're dealing with declining cash flows, among other issues. What are the questions then they should be asking right now?
1: I don't, I think traditional business, you need a strategy for the next year, and you need, you know, to have a vision of where you're going three years from now, I'm actually asking people, where do you want to be 30 days from now? What do you need to do to get to 30 days from now? And it grounds it in reality. You aren't going to be at 100% volume 30 days from now. Um, But you can set some goals, and then you can start to work through what the architecture is. I'm going to assume, since most of us have been doing this for four to six weeks, as far as sheltering at home or some variation of social distancing decrease of elective volume that we've already worked through some of the processes and systems. Now is the time where honestly we need to tighten the belt a little bit. So what are the things, you know, you, you went through and created the process so that you could generate some revenue? You went through and you kind of top of mind. You're participating in the MGMA communities. You're working through your chronic disease list and setting them up for a tele. You're made appointments for you're assuming that you're, um, state opens up and or your region opens up you're starting to set up visits you're starting to set those processes in place now the question i'm asking is really hard which is how if you had to ratchet yourself another 15% where would you cut and the reason why i'm asking that is a it does two things number one i think we're going to have to cut to the bone expenses to get through this and i think it's better to consciously make those decisions and prioritize them than be forced to make decisions as in cutting stuff. But then the other part is, um, I think it forces prioritization and creativity, because you start to work through what's next. And so for a lot of people, um, you know, the health systems in particular that were in some of the harder hit areas that knew that they were going to have to sustain this a longer period of time, like New York, they quickly went to furloughing staff. Um, because if you're not seeing elective volume and you're not going to be seeing elective volume to June or July, it's hard to keep those staff members, uh, administrators took cuts and pay things like that. Um and it's not anything that we want to do, but what's interesting to me is um in that that so the first thing is take a look at your expenses and figure out where you can take fifteen percent. then the other thing that I don't think a lot of practices have really engaged in because the thought process is i can't oh, I can't do this, or no one's going to listen. Believe it or not, the health insurers are incredibly aware that that medical practices in crisis. And this is a good time to talk to them about what they can do to help you out, get through. So top insurers, Healthcare, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Humana, um, Medicare, Medicaid, they're actually open. So I'm encouraging practice administrators, practice executives to reach out to the insurance people in who are managing their contracts and start having the conversations of how do we do this better? And I do see this opportunity, this time period is an opportunity to really start putting in some of the foundations for value-based care. You have the time to actually think through that process because the one thing I think um, I would bet a dollar that we're going to see as an outcome of this is a hard push towards value-based care. So right now we're still in the United States mainly in fee-for-service is I look at that two point two trillion dollars uh, CARES Act, and I'm looking at uh, the four hundred billion dollars went that preceded it, and the probably one point four billion dollars that will come afterwards. We're going to have to recoup that money somehow as a country, and I think the best opportunity is in more efficient healthcare.
0: Okay, um, what can leaders do then to ensure that? because you were mentioning the the last resort, you don't want to cut staff. So the staff that they have, what can they do to take better care of their teams? And we're having unique challenges now um, in communicating with patients. So at the same time, how do they take better care of the teams? And how do they make sure they're communicating and taking the kind, right kind of care with their patients as well?
1: Yeah. Um, so, there was a lot of discussion once telehealth went into place around telephonic versus video. So certainly in, in, if you don't have internet access, if you're speaking to a much older population, um, you, you're going to have to work telephone and those kind of things as opposed to video. But to the extent that you can use visual as well as auditory in engaging both your staff uh, if you're if you're not working directly with your staff and with your patient, that's our recommendation. So, you know, the communication sixty percent of it is nonverbal, and so I think you'll pick up a lot having those verbal cues. In regards to taking care of people and staff, I think this requires a little bit different skill set than we traditionally talk about in reward and reward in medical practice. And this is more about the care aspect. So, you know, the Classic leadership, I listen more than I talk. Um, classic administration, I talk 10 times <laughs> more than I. This is actually where I think administrators and executives need to pull out from the bottom of their, their toolbox, curiosity. And I think it's about listening, but I also think it's about asking important questions like how are you doing? What's going on? What do you think isn't working? And to recognize that not everyone is in a Zen state of mind right now. There's, there's a lot of angry, scared people who are operating under fear. And so you have to give them some grace to be able to share that so that you can get down to uh, what is important in practice and, and in business. Um, And so I'm actually telling some of the more sophisticated uh, administrators that your job is kind of den mother right Hmm. now. And that's, you're making hard decisions, you're, you know, keeping things on the track, but you've now acquired den mom as part of it. And some of that is, I mean, some of the techniques I'm doing, I'm insisting that I touch base with people. I mean, I'm not saying this is best practice, but I'm sending HR appropriate memes um, and uh, just staying connected with people in such a way that it's more than just about did you finish this project where are you on budget but it's much more of a personal I care about you I want to make sure you're okay and that actually um, I think feeds the leaders as well because by doing so, they're remaining connected to people, and I do think that we are, as as healthcare professionals, we are in the business of connection. Right,
0: right. Um, you touched on the next thirty days earlier. Uh, we hear this term "new normal." Uh, things are evolving <laughs> daily. Uh, we're seeing what the yeah. new normal is with the, the with the virus and. Potential cures and that sort of thing. But when we look out from a, a business landscape, the business of healthcare, what, is, what are you seeing over the next six months, 12 months, what this new normal could look like?
1: Yeah. Um, it's funny. I've, I have a former board chair reached out to me and said, you know, I think your MGMA data survey on physician compensation is just going to be worthless. Because we're all going to fire our physicians. So, and then I also hear from some of our colleagues, you're you, you're gonna hurt physicians because there's gonna be a land grab for physicians on the back end. Because once we get put everyone on hold, if physicians have been let go or whatever, we're all gonna need physicians to take care of everyone because we're all gonna be sick for a real long time. Because if you had chronic disease, we didn't take care of it. If you needed healthcare maintenance, we didn't take care of it. And if you have Complications from COVID, we didn't take care of it. We just kind of made sure that you were up and breathing and weren't on a ventilator. So, we're navigating those two very diametrically opposed um, visions of what healthcare looks like thirty to, to thirty days to six months from now. Here's what I think is going to happen, um, and I have no data. So this is this is me and my crystal ball. Um, I think we're going to slowly start to see volumes increase. I think we're going to have to give up a lot of the luxury of healthcare. And what I mean by that is um, we were using a lot of specialists to provide primary care, um, which is expensive care. I think we were utilizing our resources, maybe not in the best way. And I think our goals and drives were really around the business of healthcare and less about care. I think what we've done is burned out our healthcare provider population. I think we've burned out a lot of our staff. If you aren't furloughed, you're being overwhelmed right now. So I think that we're going to have to, and it's not the new normal because. I don't think we're gonna be in a place with this illness to get to a norm for probably 12 to 18 months until we actually have a vaccine or effective treatment. So I think the new normal is there is no normal, that there needs to be flexibility and agility. And um, I think you need to start to wrap your, as a leader, you have to wrap your arms around the only thing that is consistent is gonna be change. Regulations are going to be coming in like they are right now. Day after day after day, things are changing. Um, you need to figure out what your resources, and you do need to work collaboratively more than you ever have, not necessarily thinking about merging businesses, but be in communication with your peers so that you can help each other out. So it's I. what I would say the next, succinctly put the next 30 to s- days to six months is, is really about survival, mm-hmm. I think, um, and about getting through it so that you can then enter into the game of what is healthcare post COVID. Yeah. Um, I get asked a lot of questions on other podcasts and by journalists about what about will this create opportunities for health uh, large healthcare systems to buy medical practices? The answer is. Probably not. If anything, I think it may make them want to divest medical practices uh, because they're going to need those financial assets to maintain the hospitals. And remember that we were on the path of decreasing hospital beds, decreasing inpatient hospitals, and then approximately eight weeks ago, it became all about ICU beds and ventilators. And this is a finite period of time. So recognize that where we are in the cycle is as a medical practice is we just want to sustain and then we'll be able to play or basic participate in what does this look like on the back end and i'm not making big prognostications on what this looks like a year from now i think some of that depends on so agnostic to politics however there's flavors What flavor are we? Are we a blue flavor or red flavor? I think that'll play into what healthcare looks like in the future. Um, but I also think what we're doing as a country, once again, agnostic of politics, is we're incurring debt today to be able to make it through to the future. And that debt will need to be serviced. And so we start, we really do, I think the. Let's talk about what the effect of healthcare is on our gross domestic product. Let's talk about where are we gonna get those resources to pay back that debt. I look at the biggest healthcare expenditure on the federal budget line, which is $500 billion for healthcare, which is going up steadily, excuse me, $500 billion for Medicare, Medicaid, over $893 billion for healthcare. And think to myself, That's a really nice place to cut, especially if statistics indicate that uh, 30% of that may be wasted. Okay.
0: Before we sign off then, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience um, about what you've learned through this crisis and anything that they can then apply to their own lives, apply to their own practices?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that um, when you were asking me about the article that I wrote, Daniel, we didn't talk about gratitude. It's really hard to be grateful uh, in this time. Um, Everyone is disrupted. Whether your life was great and swimming along, whether it wasn't so great, your life is disrupted, and we don't know what this is going to be, which creates a fair amount of fear and anxiety. So I think one of uh, psychologically speaking when you take a look at how do you start to deal with trauma and crisis a good way to start people will recommend that you do a gratitude journal for lack of a better word so one of the things that I would encourage the people listening to this is to try an experiment and this was actually borne out by research done at Duke University so reputable University that basically said if you write down five to seven things before you go to bed um, for a week, that that actually is as effective in promoting happiness and well-being as actually taking an antidepressant. So this doesn't have to be big or fancy, and it also doesn't have to be I'm grateful that you know butterflies are doing their thing and birds. It can be grateful as in you know I I actually put on clean clothes today. I mean I think yeah. expectations happen. In alignment with what's really going on, I I uh, joke—total tension—but I joke now that I should get a badge because I'm not in sweats. uh, (laughs) That kind of thing. Because I think our priorities are things a little bit. Um, But um, I would ask the audience: try that experiment for a week. Um, I think it's really good to ground us as human beings and as administrators into what what is actually there. Because I think particularly in healthcare, because we have been so devastated, as devastated as the restaurant industry and others, that it feels like everything is out of control and it's never going to be okay again. And I think to start with a simple action before you go to sleep like that helps helps people to wrap their arms around simple gratitude, grounds them into what's going on, and then actually does help focus you on the things you can control, which kind of moves you along into what do we do next.
0: Well, Haley, thanks for sharing that insight with us. That is wonderful advice. And I'm going to pick that up. I'll check back with you in a week or so and let you know what I learned from that. And I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate you very much.
0: And that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Nthrive for sponsoring this week's show. Also, thanks to our guest, Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright. To keep up with the latest regarding the pandemic, be sure to visit mgma.com COVID. To register for the May 21st online seminar, Coding Essentials for the Non-Coder, with a spotlight on telehealth and COVID-19, Visit mgma.com slash events. You can also connect with fellow members and healthcare peers at community.mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening.
1: Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers
0: for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at MGMA.com slash membership. Thanks.